Hi, I'm Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Welcome to Podcast 31, Ostrich Days. Landing a job at the Atascadero Zoo took my career into an unfamiliar and challenging direction. I never even considered taking courses on exotic animals as I worked my way through veterinary school. Here's a portion of an interview I did with Gene Moulter, a radio host at KYXZ, a San Luis Obispo County radio station. I worked for the Tascadero Zoo for a period of time as the vet. Wow, how fun. It was, it was. I went into vet school and I thought, I'm going to be a, a large animal vet. And I never paid attention to the exotic section. And I had to do some fast learning. Uh, right, so large animal means horses and cows? Pretty much. Okay. You know, you don't do, you don't do zoos. That's, for, that's feathers and scales. I don't want to touch feathers and scales. <laughs> okay. I don't want to learn about feathers and scales. <laughs> Okay. I'm a large animal vet, okay. but I decided I'll take the chance. I'll take the challenge, and okay. it, w it worked very well. I developed some lifelong friendships from that. Chapter thirty-eight: A new clinic. Alan introduced me to a wealthy patron of the zoo, John B. John owned llamas and asked Alan to refer a vet who knew about the weird animals. He kept the llamas on his weekend ranch in the Tascadero. John's main house was in Bakersfield, where he worked hard over the years to purchase five car dealerships. When I asked him why he didn't move over to the coast, he said the money was in Bakersfield, not here. When John was away, Perry, his next-door neighbor, looked after the place. Perry fed the animals, but was useless doing anything else with them. He called on me when problems developed. My first call to help was to remove a halter. The llama was growing, and he suddenly noticed her harness had become too small. That alone told me that these people, at least Perry, was clueless animal-wise. He was also old. Perry was retired from PG&E and was useless for helping with the physical restraint. He tried unsuccessfully to get the llama into a corner so I could use scissors to cut loose her halter. The flighty animal was not used to people in her comfort zone, and she was faster and wilier than we were. Perry ran out of stamina and strength quickly. Deciding it was best to leave her for now, I figured I'd come back with another person to tackle the job. The next day, I returned with Mary to help me with this stupid simple task. But that went poorly, too. Again, the llama was too fast for us. So I handed Mary one end of a rope, and I held the other end tight as we slowly approached the llama to corral her. The llama ran right into the line, and Mary was flung onto the ground. What are we supposed to be doing here? she yelled angrily at me. She had no experience with llamas either. You're supposed to be helping me, I replied. Eventually, we were able to trap the llama in the corner of her feeding stall. I quietly walked up to her, cut the undersized halter off her head, and retreated. The llama had not been handled nor approached by anyone for way too long, and these people had no animal sense. A few months later, Perry called me back. The llama was lying on the ground and wouldn't get up. Unbeknownst to any of us, the llama was pregnant when John bought her, and now was unable to deliver. I arrived to find her trying to have a baby, called a crea, but it was stuck inside. The birth canal was open, but the crea's feet were in the wrong place, and the head was pushed backwards, creating a total stoppage of the birthing process. I could not pull the head forward to create a normal birthing position. I needed to pull the baby out with a cesarean section. I decided on a paralumbar approach 
because I learn llamas have significant complications with the C-section performed through the ventral midline, the way we do it on dogs and cows. I opted to go in behind her upper left side, the paralumbar fossa, the same depression behind the ribs where I diagnosed stomach problems in cattle. I sedated her in the vein, then deadened the paralumbar region by injecting lidocaine in an upside-down L position, with the long leg of the L paralleling the outline of mama's last rib. Incising through the fossa, I pushed my hand inside the belly and grabbed the uterus, pulling out enough to cut and explore. I felt inside the womb, found the head, and coaxed it out, then pulled the whole baby for mama. Suturing the uterus, I dropped it back into the abdomen. Next, I sutured the abdominal wall together and went on to help the baby. I had already ripped off the amniotic sac when I pulled the baby out, so that it could breathe. I needed to complete the process of removing any other membranes so the crea could become free of its prenatal support structures to allow it to breathe and move outside of mama's uterus. Baby and mother both did fine from the surgery. During the period I worked for John, I was developing an application for a loan from the Small Business Administration to purchase an old house on El Camino Real in Atascadero, where I was planning to build my second veterinary clinic. I put together a notebook containing over 100 pages regarding my proposal which I submitted to a banker. Three months later, the project was denied for two reasons. The first problem was the SBA could not see how I could repay the loan for my expected earnings. I had presented a spreadsheet mirroring my earnings growth in the PASO office, but the SBA reported, the financial exhibits submitted do not appear to be a reliable source of information about debt serviceability. The second problem was the SBA did not feel we offered enough collateral, citing it is not sufficient to protect the interests of the government. Putting in a phone call to John B., I asked him to review my proposal. I brought my spreadsheets, and as I was laying them out on his couch, he asked me if I could handle this debt. That's all he needed to know. I told him I sure thought I could, and the next week he purchased the building, and we laid out a repayment schedule. I was to refurbish the place according to my needs at my expense. He was to be paid a certain amount each month. At the end of 10 years, I would purchase the building at an agreed-upon sum. He sent me a check for $110,000. The typewriter he used was a manual one, and there were some alignment problems with the numbers, but the signature was okay and the deal went through. I went to work rebuilding the old house into a veterinary clinic on the main boulevard of Atascadero, building the cabinets, countertops, and bookshelves, just as I had done in the Paso office. The clinic opened in August 1989. Because I wanted to push business, I started my days at the Atascadero Hospital, drove to Paso to work, and then went back to Atascadero to field calls until 7 p.m. I also fit zoo calls and horse calls in between. With the Atascadero office open and functioning, I could facilitate better medicine at the zoo by bringing zoo surgeries to my place. Alan called me to come check out Tico, the male spider monkey. He had broken his right hand on a steel sliding door when it dropped down to separate his bedroom from the enclosure. On the way out for the day, he hesitated and turned back at the same time, the guillotine steel gate closed, breaking all four metacarpal bones on his right hand. These are the bones that lie between the wrist and the knuckles. Repairing the fracture of these bones is hard, particularly on a 12-pound monkey. I needed more expertise than I possessed and called a human surgeon. Dr. Barry agreed to meet me on a Sunday morning at my new office. Alan and I tranquilized Tico and brought him to my office where I deepened the anesthesia and intubated the monkey for safer gas inhalation. 
After shaving the hair off Tico's hand, we laid him on the surgical table, and I used surgical antiseptic soap to clean germs from the surgery site. Dr. Barry started the procedure while I acted as anesthesiologist. Under his ministrations, each of the four thin bones was reduced back to normal as he placed small wire rods through each of the four bones. We put a bandage on Tico and allowed him to recover while Alan drove him back to the zoo. End of chapter. The noises you hear are called booming. They are made by Sutton, a seven-foot-tall adult ostrich, on my farm. The way these birds moved onto my place is a serendipitous consequence of my position at the Atascadero Zoo. Because of this connection, I became one of a handful of veterinary ostrich experts in the United States. Chapter 39 Shattermere Farms Ostrich Facility A few months later, I received another call from John B. He gave his llamas away because he was more interested in raising ostriches and made a deal with an ostrich farmer in Texas to have two females and one male delivered for $100,000. The trio was a proven group. The Texan guaranteed they were laying fertile eggs. Ostrich eggs were selling for $1,000 each, and three-month-old healthy chicks were selling for $2,500. John could recoup his investment in a year if things went the way the Texan outlined. However, John's Atascadero ranch was ill-suited for these birds. It was too hilly, and the slopes were strewn with large boulders, forcing the birds to walk about carefully and gingerly on an uneven substrate. No place to raise a trio of laying ostriches. Realizing his ranch was inadequate, John called me to arrange a deal. He wanted to move the three adults to my place. My farm was right for ostriches, with lots of flat areas. I didn't have correct fencing, but John's a businessman. So he arranged a loan to get the farm started, and I would repay the loan by taking care of his bird project. We agreed on a monthly money amount for the boarding of the birds. Mary and I modified the horse pens around the barn by raising the top of the fence by three feet. The birds are seven feet tall, and we did not know how much they would test an inadequate enclosure. The birds arrived in early December. Their presence changed things a lot. Each evening, the deep booming calls of the male punctuated the nighttime silence as he proclaimed his territory to other nearby birds. The fellow was large and aggressive, especially during mating and laying season. When he noticed someone coming too close, he began an offensive display by standing tall and spreading his wings wide. Holding his head high, he would open his mouth wide and emit a hissing warning to the invader. He kept his mouth open and did a fretful dance, sort of like a runner warming up. Placing one foot on the ground, and then the other quicker and faster, he dialed up the frenzy until he launched himself full force onto the intruder. While running at the threat, the male would leverage his prehistoric legs straight ahead, trying to snag the infiltrator with his giant nasty toenail. It is so deadly it can actually disembowel a person. When feeding the adults, we did so only after carefully opening the barn door and pouring feed from a sack into a feeder right next to the door. Similarly, we hosed water into a large tub next to the feeder and avoided going in there with the grown-ups. The day after Christmas, when I went out to feed, there was a big white egg on the ground. Because the male was so aggressive, 
we were not quite sure how we could gather it up. Looking around the ranch, I found an old half-inch thick piece of plywood four feet wide and eight feet long. I screwed two metal handles onto the plywood and cut some eye holes so that I could hold the board and walk towards the egg. By intimidating the male with my eight-foot plywood stature, I managed to collect the egg without incident. Now, Mary and I needed to incubate this three-pound egg. John sent us an egg incubator and a chick hatcher. Both pieces were somewhat stylistic, more like furniture than functional items, but they were a start to our hatching business. The incubator was a wooden cylinder, laid on its side, about six feet long. The eggs were put in wire boxes inside, and the entire incubator rotated back and forth every few minutes. The inside was kept at a set temperature and specific humidity. The rotation mimicked the bird's natural tendency to move the eggs around in the shallow dirt nest, which they dug in the wild using large toenails on their feet. Periodically jostling the eggs was necessary to keep the inside membranes from sticking to each other and to facilitate oxygen transfer into the fluids and allow carbon dioxide to leave. Oxygen and carbon dioxide make their way through the pores of the eggshell, and if the eggs were not turned at least six times a day, the developing embryo died. We wouldn't do this in the barn as it needed an upgrade. It had dirt floors, no closed rooms, and only one circuit of electricity. So we set the ostrich business up inside our home. We placed the incubator along one wall of the dining room, plugged it in, added water to the humidifier, and turned it on. We put the single egg in the incubator, and suddenly we were in the ostrich egg hatching business. Other eggs came along and, each time, we brought out our wooden barrier to collect it. After a while, we painted a gorilla on the plywood, which made us look even more intimidating. In reality, African gorillas are mountain creatures and ostriches are in the plains areas. But anything that kept the male ostrich away from us was what we needed. Once collected, the eggs incubate for six weeks. On day 42, they are transferred to the hatcher, ready to hatch. However, for some reason, we were having a difficult time hatching out healthy babies. Too many chicks were weak and they slowly faded away a few days after hatching. I needed to understand this problem better so we could ensure greater success. So for now, we kept both the incubator and the hatcher in our little house, successfully hatching out many in spite of the fading chick problem. But with chicks hatching out, we needed a place to house them. We cleared the guest bedroom of all human furniture and put the chicks to bed inside four by four enclosures. They were puppy pens I made for Mary, who had used them for raising dogs. I built runs on the lawn by setting up lightweight cage panels so the chicks could be outside. Mary would pick up each one and carry it outside the pen, which was no problem at first when they were half the size of a chicken, but they didn't stop growing. Soon they were turkey size and getting strong and heavy. They grew one foot a month, going from three to thirty pounds in that time. Mary urged me to find a new place for them when they were three feet tall. She was tired of carrying these three-foot-tall, 30-pound birds with long, kicking legs outside every morning and back in every night. It was not only tedious, but it was becoming dangerous. Soon these guys would be as tall as us. We needed the barn remodeled ASAP. The house reeked of alfalfa hay and ostrich poop. I agreed we needed to expand our hatching operations, but I wanted to do some research. I was committed to building the correct type of facility. That spring, Mary and I decided, before we committed finances to the property, we needed to agree with Melanie and Jay to protect our financial interests. Mary wanted to be untangled with her partnership with her ex-agent and ex-boyfriend Jay, and from her dear friend Melanie, her ex-road manager.
We split the property with Mel, paid Jay off, and ended up with 20 acres of our own. We had a new, deeper well drilled about 230 feet down. The older well at 75 feet was still usable, but the amount of water it produced was sometimes inadequate for all of our expanding needs. I purchased an 18-station sprinkler control box to power a 12-valve manifold, and I ran irrigation piping to my new lawn and garden areas to water these places automatically. One of the problems with gardening in Creston is the summer heat and dryness. Central California is in one of seven plant zones worldwide collectively called Mediterranean type of climate. That means it rains in the late fall, winter, and early spring. After May, there is usually zero precipitation until November. An automatic watering system combined with a second well ensured my plantings could make it through the summer dryness. After fine-tuning our watering needs, we were ready to remodel the barn into an ostrich hatching facility. By this time, we were members of the American Ostrich Association and started receiving their monthly periodical. One magazine issue talked about a modern facility in Lower Indiana, which piqued our interest. We decided to visit Evansville, Indiana to check this operation out and arrived in the middle of one of those severe Midwestern thunderstorms. Typical of the Midwest, lightning bolts tore through the sky amid the torrential downpour as Mary and I scurried out of the small plane and into the terminal. We both grew up in the Midwest, and the spectacle sharpened our memories of hunkering down during lightning storms. The downpour continued as we left the airport and checked into an adjacent hotel. Our room looked out onto the tarmac of the airport. The lightning and thunder continued as before, but the spacing of seconds between the flash and the thunder closed in on each other. The storm was coming closer to us. I looked out the window and saw a large lightning bolt head straight for the tarmac. It hit the asphalt with a sharp crack. As the storm moved on, the period between the lightning and the sound of the thunder increased again. When dawn broke the next day, I saw the lightning bolt had gouged out a four-foot crater in the middle of the airport tarmac. It was sunny and bright after breakfast as we walked around the puddles in the parking lot, picked up a rental car, and drove out of town to visit the ostrich facility. We spent two hours walking through the operation and conversing with the owners. Towards the end of the tour, the owner asked me about endotoxic shock. That refocused my thoughts on the fading chick syndrome. Could it be due to an infection? His vet said his chicks were dying from it. Endotoxic shock occurs with infections. I explained, in a severe infection, too many bacteria are reproducing throughout the body, which is called septicemia. As these bacteria metabolize for their growth and reproduction, they release toxins that end up killing the patient. And this is what we mean by the term endotoxic shock. This early mortality in ostrich chicks was to play a significant role in the ostrich industry for the next few years, and the answer was not as simple as overwhelming bacterial infections, yet this was the concern everyone was worried about. Was there a secret, deadly disease causing such a widespread mortality in babies? On the way back to the hotel, we stopped to visit President Abraham Lincoln's boyhood home, 20 miles east of Evansville. The replica was indeed a log cabin. The floor plan consisted of one room and a cottage, 10 feet wide by 20 feet long, 200 square feet. This was how people of the early 1800s lived on the frontier. Their homes and lives were created from what was immediately available to them. They were too poor to afford amenities, and were too remote to ship in any but the simplest commodities to make their life easier to bear. And yet they still thrived because that was all they had to live on, which causes me to wonder what people will think of our lifestyle 200 years from now. Back home, we drew out plans for the addition to our barn, and I called John for another loan to refurbish the barn 
and the fencing on the property. We cleaned out the old barn, had a construction crew come in, and began turning the horse barn into an ostrich hatch facility, doubling the size of the barn and modernizing it with ample electricity, water, and concrete floors. Hot water tubes were placed on the concrete floors to offer an even, non-draft heating capability. We added a room just for incubating the chicks, as well as a vet room where the newly hatched chicks were processed and any sick ones tended to. The old hayloft upstairs was expanded and made into an office, as well as a guest bedroom. Once again, I used my woodworking skills to create utility cabinets and counters in the vet room, as well as pine cabinets and bookcases upstairs. The barn was finished in the late fall of 1990. End of chapter. Chapter 40. Ostrich Vet. I needed to delve deeper into ostrich medicine to create a successful hatching business. I found a seminar being put on by Texas A&M, January 6, 1991, so I signed up for it and Mary booked my flight. On the way there, I had a layover in Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. From there, I took a smaller plane to College Station, where Texas A&M University is. Being the boss of the practice for seven years, I now had people, my employees and my wife, who looked after day-to-day things for me. That allowed me to focus on things ahead, but also made me lazy. There were others who would take care of the small stuff for me. During the layover, I settled on a seafood bar offering fresh shrimp and pulled out a book to read while I munched on shrimp and cocktail sauce. After a while, I noticed it was getting late, so I went back to the part of the terminal where I had my connection. I asked the woman at the counter when the flight was leaving. She told me it had already gone. Bewildered, I asked her what I should do, and she took care of it. Yet another problem caused by my lazy inattention. She put me on a shuttle to a nearby hotel for the night and booked the first flight out the next morning. The airline took care of all the fees and arrangements. Those were the golden days of air travel. I arrived at the seminar a half hour before it started. Dr. Fowler was the kickoff speaker, and he reviewed Rattite Anatomy for us. He recognized me from vet school and said hello. The Rattite family encompassed any bird without a keel bone, which included emus and cassowaries from Australia, rays from South America, and kiwis from New Zealand, as well as the best-known bird, the ostrich, from Africa. The keel bone evolved as an attachment site for the breast muscles on birds so that they could fly. Ratites never flew, and they never developed breastbones. So the only substantial meat on an ostrich comes from its legs. The breast has no muscle or flesh on it. The remaining seven lectures covered many aspects of ostrich rearing and medicine. I introduced myself to Dr. Jensen from the university, who chaired the seminar, asking him if I could arrange another time to see him in the next few months. He gave me his phone number. Two weeks after I returned from the weekend seminar in Texas, I drove up to UC Davis for another workshop. Dr. Fowler again gave the same lecture on anatomy. I was glad to see Dr. Ed Ramsey provide a presentation on rat-type restraint, immobilization, and anesthesia. He was an acquaintance from school. We spent part of the summer together at Grand Canyon saving burrows. Ed graduated two years before me. During the summer between my sophomore and junior year of vet school, I was remodeling Martha's house in Davis with my brother Rick. Ed was in the middle of a project in the Grand Canyon, removing wild burrows, and needed someone to drive the horse trailer up to help with the burrow transport. Rick had a pickup truck that could do the job, so we took a break from building and went on the long drive. The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals funded the project. The Park Service was in the process of removing all the burrows from the canyon, 
they were not native and were destroying the habitat. Any burrow left after we finished would be shot, so they were trying to get them all. Ed was in charge of the veterinary aspect of the removal. Cowboys at the bottom of the canyon rounded the burrows into a corral. When weather conditions allowed, a helicopter with a net dropped down to the canyon floor and brought each animal up to the top where we vet checked them to make sure they were okay. This process proceeded throughout the summer, but Rick and I needed to get back to Davis to work on the house, so we stayed less than two weeks. Dr. Karen Hicks also spoke at the Davis seminar. She flew in from Texas where she was making quite a name for herself in the ostrich arena. She talked about reproduction. Other vets spoke on pediatrics, surgical techniques, and infectious diseases. These seminars were on weekends. I still maintain my weekly work schedule at the offices and the zoo continuing large animal work, but because of the tax law changes made in the mid-1980s, the horse breeding industry was experiencing severe depression. The new legislation took away horse deductions, removing the financial incentive for people to breed horses. After Reagan implemented his initial tax slashing plan in 1981, the federal budget deficit started to balloon rapidly. Reagan and his economic advisors were forced to scramble and raise corporate taxes to calm the deficit expansion and stop the economy from spiraling downward. Between 1982 and 84, Reagan implemented four tax hikes. In 1986, his Tax Reform Act imposed the largest corporate tax increase in U.S. history. Michael Keegan, Huffington Post Politics. Faced with looming deficits, Reagan raised taxes again in 1983 with a gasoline tax and once more in 1984, this time by $50 billion over three years, mainly through closing tax loopholes for businesses. Reagan's liberal legacy, Joshua Green, Washington Monthly, January-February 2003. The horse industry was one of the businesses experiencing the severe closure of loopholes. President Reagan's tax laws squeezed out many horse farms. One of my clients from Santa Inez told me even though President Reagan had a ranch in the area, he was still considered to be the president who killed the horse industry. It made no sense to invest in veterinary services to conceive and deliver a foal when there was no buyers. Creston Oaks Arabians shut down. I still worked at Thistledown Farms, but breeding services were less needed there as well. Four months later, Mary and I flew into Houston after I set up a meeting with Dr. Jensen in Texas. Mary stayed at John and Colette's house in Houston, while I drove the hundred-plus miles to College Station, where Doc gave me a tour of their facilities. He also called ahead to some breeders, who let me see about their ostrich setups. I spent the next two days regarding how others raised their birds. Afterward, John, Colette, Mary, and I vacationed for two days around Houston. We spent an afternoon on Galveston Island, and we overindulged ourselves during three nights out of dining. We ate so much food it became a joke when we said, Oh, no, you're using the F word again, which was code for dining out. I also visited plant nurseries around John's house. I wanted to try growing some of those plants back home, so I purchased five different plants and repackaged them in my luggage right before the trip home. Once home, I arranged the notes for my lectures and visits, formulating my thoughts into a manual so that we could use it at Shadowmere. Besides being members of the American Ostrich Association, we also joined the California Ostrich Association. As ostrich production ramped up at Shadowmere, Mary hired Robin and Gary to help her with the egg and chick processing, and the regular cleanup. Over the next year, word spread we were available to help people hatch their eggs, raise their chicks, and board their adult layers at our ranch. One farm sent the eggs in a cooler from Oxnard 
to San Luis Obispo via a Greyhound bus. Another person delivered his eggs twice a week by driving two hours from Canyon Country. A couple flew me up to Reno to vet check a pair of birds they wanted to buy. Eventually, we had so many birds, the first incubator couldn't accommodate all of our eggs. So we contracted with Nature Form Hatchery Company to place two walk-in incubators inside an empty room in the back of the barn, which increased our capacity to 240 eggs. We dedicated an entire room for these incubators. It was air-conditioned and dehumidified, and had a particular HEPA filtration unit to purify the air. Every 10 days during the incubation period, we pulled each egg out of the incubator for candling and weighing. Candling is an old-fashioned way to look inside the developing egg. Using a unique light box, we candle the eggs on days 10, 20, 30, and 40. The developing embryo can be seen to grow through the candling process as it develops. It's important to mark the airspace at the top of the egg. Typically, it increases in size as the moisture leaves the egg through the pores. Every 10 days, a pencil line was drawn to record the changes. Remember that fading chick problem? As I continued the research high and low for an infection, I realized low moisture loss during incubation was the likely cause of the weakness we saw in the fading chicks. Each egg needs to lose a specific amount of weight for it to lead to a healthy baby during hatchout. This weight loss is a direct correlation of moisture loss in the egg. If an egg did not lose enough moisture, the chick hatched out soggy and too weak to thrive. So we weighed the eggs at their 10-day checkup to chart this moisture loss. If the loss was too much or too little, the egg could be manipulated accordingly, usually by putting it into another incubator at a higher or lower humidity level. The idea was to put the egg in an environment where water vapor is leaving the egg through the pores at the perfect rate. Around 42 days, the eggs were moved from the incubator into the hatcher. The hatcher is different than the incubator. It doesn't turn back and forth every half hour, but has individual boxes where the egg can prop upright, airspace up, so the chick can peck and push its way out. It also has high humidity, so the newly exposed egg membranes don't dry up and cement the chick in. The first step in the hatching sequence is the internal pip. Pipping is the process whereby the baby breaks its way out of the egg, and the first move occurs when the head breaks through the inner membrane, that thick rubbery white lining that separates the growing baby from the airspace. Internal pip happens when the baby pushes its head through the inner layer into the airspace and starts to breathe air through its beak into its lungs. A healthy chick first shows internal pip before any crack in the shell occurs, and a light box allowed us to visualize this as the baby moved its head into the airspace. Now the chick rests for a while, allowing lung respirations to strengthen as the process of oxygen transfer through the eggshell shuts down. The blood vessels running from the belly button along the inside of the eggshell constrict, pulling all the blood into the chick. Finally, just before hatching, the chick pulls its yolk sac inside. Now with the yolk sac internalized and the blood vessels running out the umbilicus shut down, the baby can come into the world. When egg respiration shuts down, the chick begins external pip. Using the pointed protuberance on its beak, the bird can quickly tap a crack in the shell, making a hole in the shell above the airspace. Once the head can see outside, the chick rests some more, then uses its legs to explode from the egg. After the chicks hatched out, they went through a post-hatch treatment where we placed a wrap on the belly button, weighed the bird, and inserted a microchip in the big muscle behind the head. A newly hatched chick will lose weight for the first five days after hatching because it is still living off the nutrients from the internalized yolk sac. 
As these nutrients are utilized, the chicks should start eating and show a gradual weight gain followed by the initial five-day loss. This was when the fading chick problem happened. Right after hatch, some of these guys just went to shit. They never thrived after that, and I needed to figure out why. I used as many tools as I could try to figure the problem out. Some vets at lectures suggested it could be a virus or a bacteria that we were missing in our tests. Every dead chick was necropsied to see what the problem might be. Blood was pulled from the heart and run through a bacterial culture to see if bacteria caused septicemia. Blood samples and necropsy tissue samples were sent to the state lab to check for infections, vitamin levels, and other possible problems. We were scared to death some infectious agent was doing this damage. Eventually, I realized most problems were environmental and not infectious. Poor incubation practices were a real issue, but the realization didn't come to me for a while. I was too worried I was missing some mysterious bug. End of chapter. Thank you for listening. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site Spotify. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. 